The State of the Union for the TreeCast this week is not only strong, but it's New Jersey. Two of the finest from the pipeline, from the Garden State to the farm, are joining us on this week's episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Glad you're here with us. It is Tuesday, May 26th, 2020. Hope you're coming off of a Memorial Day weekend in which, if you had the chance, you got a chance to enjoy it with family and friends. And above all, I hope you spent some time uh, reflecting and remembering and reminding yourself of what Memorial Day is truly all about. I'm indeed Troy Clarity. Hello. Glad you are with us. What's our guest list for this week? Boy, am I glad you asked that. Two guys from New Jersey. Number one from West Orange, one of the pillars of Stanford men's basketball one of the guys who made that program into what it became, certainly for the for the 15 years that followed, the one and only Brevin Knight. We're going to have a deep conversation with him a bit later on in the show. But coming up in just a few minutes from Harrington Park, New Jersey, Stanford class of 91, Stanford football alum, and a sitting United States Senator from the state of New Jersey, Senator Cory Booker. I am really looking forward to uh, getting his thoughts on what it's going to take for college sports to return safely and responsibly to the fields, hopefully on time. And uh, looking forward to getting some of his uh, remembrances and his thoughts on uh, his days in a Stanford uniform and how it shaped him into his political career. If you're new to the show, welcome. Make it a habit. We come at you every week. Uh, we've widened the scope from just Stanford football to, to the complete picture for Stanford athletics. And we're proud to have, have a new home in the Believe Podcast Network with great guests this spring. David Shaw, Jared Haas, Mark Madsen, Stanford baseball head coach David Esker joined us last week, as did Stanford football legend Troy Walters. And, of course, this week's guests as well. So subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, tune in. Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And also, if you're new, you might not quite be familiar with me. Hi, how you doing? Great to meet you. I'm Troy Clarity, currently a Pac-12 Network play-by-play announcer and 27 years of following and broadcasting Stanford sports underneath my belt. It's been a lot of fun. I can't wait to see Stanford back on the field. Can't wait to see college sports back in the mix. When will that be? Senator Cory Booker's thoughts on that in just a couple of moments. But as we usually do on the TreeCast, we begin with three things you need to know around Stanford athletics. Let us begin with number one. And late last week was marked with optimism as far as college sports perhaps returning on time. The NCAA announcing on Friday that voluntary athletics activities will be allowed on campus June 1st. So once the calendar turns... Student-athletes will be allowed to be on campus for voluntary activities. Larry Scott, the Pac-12 commissioner, uh, feeling a bit better as he admitted uh, that he's feeling a bit more optimistic about uh, football and the fall sports season uh, beginning on time. Now, as we start this week, and as I say this, no official word from Stanford on any potential dates for allowing Stanford student-athletes back on campus. We still expect uh, the school to announce how it plans to handle uh, the fall quarter sometime in June. But overall, even though there's still a lot of question marks left, we're nowhere near out of the woods just yet. Certainly some progress. Things looking a lot better than they did this time last month. So that's that's progress. No? Let's get to number <laughs> A recent women's basketball transaction of note Dijanae Carrington has transferred to Baylor for her final year of eligibility. She was also considering UConn and Oregon before announcing last week that Waco will be her new home. Now, Carrington was all Pac-12 as a junior. Averaged 14 points a game, 7.5 rebounds per game. A lot of folks were looking forward to big things from her last year, her senior season. Instead, she played just five games last year after injuring a knee. And that was one of the big subplots for Stanford women's basketball, who they had another good season, but still maybe not quite 
the heights that they were hoping to reach as the season began. And of course, we'll never know exactly how that season would have ended since it got shut down before the NCAA tournament was set to begin. But Dijonay Carrington, a graduate transfer heading from the farm out to Waco, best of luck to her going forward. Let's finish it up with number three. <laughs> Stanford football adding another commit last week. Safety Josh Moore, a three-star recruit out of Atlanta's Marist School, announcing his commitment last week. Marist School, that's the same school as uh, former Stanford tight end Greg Tabuata. Remember him? Uh, Moore chose Stanford over Notre Dame, Northwestern, and Duke. And he told 247sports.com that, that he likes Stanford's location, diversity, and ability to produce NFL talent. It's a smart young man. Uh, Moore joins uh, quarterback Ari Patu out of Folsom, California, and uh, Jimmy Wyrick, a cornerback from Dallas, as uh, commits to Stanford's recruiting class of 2021. More to come there, I am sure. Those are three things. Well, on the farm, they're fond of saying that Stanford football isn't a four-year decision. It's a 40-year decision. Not that our guest has been out for 40 years, but you get the point. He's done some fantastic things from his days with Stanford football to Rhodes Scholar to city council to mayor and now a U.S. senator. It is a pleasure to be joined on the TreeCast by Senator Cory Booker. Senator Booker, thanks a bunch. We appreciate the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so good to be on with you. When you started talking about 40 years, I was going to start calling you out because you and I were both graduates in the 90s. I want, I want, you, I want to remind you of that. <laughs> oh, no. I feel older and older every single day. The first time I saw uh, the, birth, the, the birth date of some of these uh, student athletes yes. there after I graduated, it was like, oh, boy, it was a whole new world after that. Yes. Amen <laughs> to that. But, but God, I tell you, I've had the privilege of being on the field for a few games, honorary captain. And I remember the first time I got, it was it'd been a long time. I came back for a game and I just I marveled at the athletes. I mean, yeah. they are, they, on that field, they're, they seem to be hitting harder, moving faster than I, we ever did. So I know their training has changed a lot and they're just exceptional, exceptional gifted uh, individuals. So I'm, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I was born when I did because I'm not sure if I would have been able to get it even onto the campus, onto the field with these guys. <laughs> it's amazing how things have changed. I'll get your further thoughts on that a bit later on um, in the chat. But, but first, let's start here. Obviously, the uh, coronavirus and the pandemic, everybody's grappling with it. College sports, uh, no different from that. And, you know, late last week, we started to get some more encouraging signs. The NCAA uh, saying that they're going to allow voluntary athletics activity starting on June 1st. Uh, conference commissioners more optimistic, more publicly optimistic that uh, football will start uh, on time uh, as scheduled. Lots of optimism, but still a lot of question marks, still a lot of hurdles at this point. Uh, right now, as you sit and as we speak, what are still the things on your checklist that need to be accomplished before we can have a safe and responsible return to college sports? Well, first of all, I, I appreciate the question and, and the hopefulness in it. I, I, I too hope that we uh, can have collegiate sports start with the, the school year, but I think we've got to make sure we do it right and do it safely. And so uh, look nationally with everything from sports to concerts to even uh, offices, we've got to have a system of tracing uh, and testing uh, and hopefully improve therapeutics for when people get this so that people will feel more confident coming out. That even if I get it, this therapeutics may not be able to get rid of it or the vaccine hasn't come out, but can lessen the chances that it gets severe with me and then have a better understanding. You know, I'm, I'm, our capacity to test has to go up significantly if we're going to know to be able to test our athletes regularly and, and, and uh, other people working so that we know who to isolate when they need to isolate and, and who can participate safely. Yeah, it's not just the student athletes, it's the support staff and the folks who might fall outside of, 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 of the target demographic of the student athletes and more into the demographic that's more, that seems to be more affected by this coronavirus. Um, as of right now, do you think that we are on the right trajectory to returning on time with college sports by, 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 the, by the time the fall term rolls around? And maybe even more importantly, finishing everything on time. So I worry about that second wave. I, I really do. And I don't know what's going to happen in, in October, November, December. And are we going to see things get bad? Again, we have 
the last time something like this happened to America was the 1918, and the second wave was worse than the first wave. And so I'm not sure what that's going to look like. And I would rather be prepared for an opportunity or prepare for a crisis and not have one than have a crisis and not be prepared. So I think that we uh, um, hopefully will open and find ways uh, to move forward, but we've got to be nimble uh, and we've got to be proactive in preparing for what could be a very challenging fall season. What's your sense of some of the pandemic's larger potential effects on colleges and universities? Because obviously there's no colleges or no college sports rather, if the colleges themselves uh, are, are struggling with this. What's your sense of uh, some of this pandemic's uh, larger effects on the schools themselves and, and how it could potentially affect and change the business of college sports? Well, look, this is going to be like a 9-11 cultural changing like that. The 9-11, I still remember things that just changed. The way we did things changed. The, um, from flying, for example, whole experience changed um, all the way to our, 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 a lot of places where you invested our resources as a society. We're now going into safety, security, counterterrorism. We're talking trillions of dollars since then been spent in those areas. So I think that we realize now that one of the greatest threats to the security of the United States of America are these pandemics and the conditions globally. Uh, you know, we're, we're a nation that way overuses antibiotics in our meat and antibiotic resistant drugs in these uh, antibiotic resistant diseases uh, um, are, can be more prevalent. We have a lot of things that could make pandemics or uh, severe illnesses uh, flare up in our country and on the planet. We have seen that becoming with more frequency. America's been generally spared. And so we just have to start making the kind of thoughtful decisions and investments uh, that help us to be safe and strong. And I'm gonna say this, university communities like Stanford are part of the promise and possibility for a future. And not uh, it's not just us being reactive. Stanford is a place that, uh, yeah, there's people there trying to predict the future, but there's also people there that are making the future. And I, I think I'm very excited about the Stanford community for what they can contribute to a new America. Because by the way, I don't want to go back to normal. Normal is just not good. I mean, we, had, uh, we saw through this uh, coronavirus, the fragility within our society, the fragility within our food systems, uh, fragility within our healthcare systems, fragility uh, um, economically. And we need to start addressing that. I'm hoping that coming out of this, our circles of empathy uh, and compassion for each other will be of will have grown. That will see people, those people doing humble jobs that are really are essential. Um, and so I just love that Stanford, in every area, uh, in, in my in my experience with them now, has always been. Yeah, we see challenges, we see difficulties, we even see wretchedness and injustice. But this is a community that's never going to let despair have the last word. Uh, because we're going to always be going out there and working to make for a better future and, and what can be more possible. So I think our campus is going to show a lot of innovation, a lot of creative thinking. Uh, I think that there's nimbleness there. And I also think that they're going to help us uh, to chart a course uh, to a better, better America 10 years from now, 15 years from now. I'm certain of that. Now, hopefully a lot of universities pick up the baton and pick up the slack and everyone pulls together uh, to try to get the, uh, the entire country and the, and the globe through this because this is obviously an international deal. Um, you obviously are a former student athlete yourself and you really embrace both roles at Stanford, student body president and all the, all the things you did back when you were on the farm. So I think you're one of the perfect people to ask this. What's right and what's good about the student athlete's experience? And how can it be improved in your mind? <laughs> um, I, I do a lot of uh, work on, on this. I'm one of a handful of senators leading on improvements to the NCAA experience overall. But let me tell you what's great about it. I mean, that's the foundation on which I stand. I mean, I was a guy, I always joke I got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards my <laughs> senior year. Uh, football opened up doors for me that would have never uh, I never would have had and gave me richness of experience, discipline, team members, com camaraderie. Uh, it just made me a better human being. And I owe so much to the sport and Stanford's sort of just philosophy. I mean, I, I, I was a, one of the most overrated high school football players in the history of America. I was a two position All-American. I, I still remember the USA Today All-American team 
me and Emmett Smith on it. People like that uh, uh, were on it. And, and uh, I was way overrated, but it gave me a chance to be recruited by everybody. And Stanford was an obvious choice, the, the obvious choice. If I used to say back then, I had the awareness to say that football was going to be my ticket and not my destination. Mm -hmm. And it really ended up being that. It, it, uh, it's, so I can't say enough about my experiences as a student athlete. Now that said, I have a lot, because of my experience as a student athlete, I have a lot of real concerns is what I consider uh, exploitation of athletes uh, in the NCAA. And Stanford is a different model. You know, if I blew out my knee in my second year, they weren't taking away my scholarship. They told me when I signed a letter of intent that it was a one year renewable scholarship, but Stanford doesn't play that way. Um, and they were on an honor four year scholarship. Well, there's lots of schools that um, make a lot of money off athletes, but if somehow they stop, their ability to play stops, they, they drop them. Uh, there are a lot of schools that aren't dedicated to the kids learning and getting a degree. Uh, that should change. There are schools, there are friends of mine who played around this country in different schools who have been spending out of pocket thousands and thousands of dollars for injuries that, that originated when they were on uh, the football field or on the basketball court. Uh, but we allow those institutions to make millions of dollars off of athletes and then leave them high and dry when they leave the schools, but they still might need a shoulder surgery, knee surgery, neck surgery, brain injuries, not, not picking up the slack for their medical costs. Um, I, I've seen the outrage of having somebody graduate and their image and likeness is still being used in Madden's football or something like that. And, and they get no compensation for that. They're still selling the jersey with the person's name on it or a number on it. They get no compensation for that, even though they're out in the real world struggling to make it. Uh, and somebody's profiting off of their name, image, or likeness. So there's a lot of things that really make me angry. We should, we should not have an NCAA where they, it's a, it's a one-year renewable scholarship. It should be 10 years that to you, for you to get your degree or whatever is appropriate there. We should have uh, uh, athletes uh, get fair compensation for the use of their image and likenesses. We should have uh, uh, medical costs covered, any, any football-related, basketball or sport-related injury, um, the, the university should have a responsibility to take care of that athlete uh, and, and that athlete's health and well-being. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that I have a, a group of senators, some of them on both sides of the aisle, who are talking about uh, really, really bringing it to the NCAA, who needs now to come to Congress and get, um, you know, the, the letter I just got from the, we just got from the head of the NCAA um, was, uh, you know, uh, asking for everything from antitrust exclusions to be extended to them, uh, all the way to, uh, 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 exemptions for workers rules. In other words, as we were spending 50, 60, 70 hours a week in season for us not to be considered employees. So they want things from us. And I think what I want from them as a, one of the leader leaders on this in the Senate, is for all athletes, no matter what institution, to be treated justly, fairly, and not to be treated like a piece of meat, uh, to be thrown out uh, um, without an education and often with physical ailments and uh, challenges. Yeah, and the fact that college sports has become a billion dollar business, billion with a B, in your mind, how does that kind of influence the dynamic of some of the things that we've seen with the student athlete experience and how things, and where things can likely improve? Well, look, it is, I think that whenever you bring that amount of money into it, um, that the primary people who are on the field doing uh, so much of, of what drives that, that wealth, and then for them to live in poverty, I mean, like we know that the scholarship uh, doesn't fully cover all the costs of a student. And so I came from a middle-class family in, in New Jersey. My parents could fly out to see me and send me money. But you and I both know that there are a lot of players that don't come from backgrounds like that. And, and here you have people making billions of dollars. They go and try to sell their jersey. And suddenly the NCAA, no exceptions, they come down on them so hard and, and take away the, the chances that they might be able to one day actually profit and make it to the pros. It's just not not giving kids, young men, young women, uh, uh, some kind of compensation uh, to me is problematic. Knowing what I saw, uh, folks who came from lower income environments go through hustle just to try to find a dollar to 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 pay for food at night or to pay for 
travel or clothing or the kind of things that people um, I struggle with. So there's a lot of things that make me angry about the way the NCAA rolls. And especially when, you know, when I was mayor, we hosted uh, 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 a part of March Madness here in Newark. That's when it really hit me how, how, how big this is and how much the NCAA makes and where that money goes and who's really benefiting from it. And just a different standard for the athletes. I mean, even the fact that I was, put, I was recruited by a, a Spurrier and he switched schools uh, while I was there. He jumped from one college to another and started recruiting me from the other college. And he has the freedom to jump around. But if I'm a student athlete, I can't transfer uh, without losing my eligibility, losing a year of eligibility. And I, there's just this, this dis dissonance between the way athletes are treated versus the other professionals that are involved in, in, uh, in NCAA sports. And that's problematic to me. Let's talk about you and, and some, some highlights from your, from your Stanford football career. You mentioned you were recruited by a whole lot of folks, including Notre Dame. Given that, how cool was it to play a, a key role in beating Notre Dame when they were ranked number one that great day in South Bend in October of 1990? What do you remember about that day? Everything. It's one of my great life experiences because I, I did a Notre Dame recruiting trip. Lou Holtz was the coach and it was one of the, I mean, Lou Holtz is one of the more motivational human beings uh -huh. ever. And like, I tell you, it was, he filled my head with, I still remember walking into the Notre Dame lock, locker room, a 17, 18 year old kid, my jersey's hanging there, uh, high school jersey, but it's Notre Dame now, my high school number. Lou Holtz is like, take a knee. And I, I don't bow before human beings, but Boom, I was on my knee. And he gave the best locker room speech I'd ever heard at that point. <laughs> I, I, talking about Notre Dame lore. He was, you know, a great quarterback. The Gipper, he even talked about Rudy, for crying out loud. And then <laughs> we have to walk out of the locker room. There's a four-leaf clothing right, right before you go down into uh, uh, to the tunnel to go out on the field. And he's like, punch that. I don't care what your background is. I'm a black guy from Jersey. But everybody who touches that suddenly, you are Irish. And then we walk out in the tunnel and... He's narrating, and I'm like catching the pass, and he gets me to the far end zone. He's like, "Turn around, Corey Booker, turn around!" And I turn around, and there, the first thing I see is Jesus Christ on the side of a building, touchdown, Jesus. And I knew, in all of my life, I knew what God and Jesus wanted from me, which was a score, a touchdown, in that end zone. And so I went home, and I think my parents had to call like psychologists and deprogrammers to get me uh, ultimately back. Uh, uh, before I, 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 you know, went to went to go there at, to Notre Dame, and I remember going to Stanford's playbook and seeing that that, that they would play Notre Dame twice in South Bend, Indiana, uh, during the time that I was there, and uh, I just knew that I could now fulfill my promise to God that I would score a touchdown in the end zone. And so sophomore year when we went out there, I was low on the depth chart, and I have to say I've asked for God's forgiveness for this because I don't think I've ever prayed more for somebody's injury. Than I did. I'm like, God, get me on that field, Lord. Don't make it a serious injury. Maybe just pull a hammy. And let me get in that game. And for <laughs> year, I did. I didn't get in the game, uh, for, but for maybe a few plays. And but then, then it rolled around senior year. Denny Green and we were going in, and I was a player. And uh, you know, I had had my best career game in terms of numbers of catches. And uh, and my one breakaway moment where All American Todd Light came up. Mm -hmm. Felford, the only fake I had, I really wasn't that complicated of a football player. He, <laughs> he falls down and I break forward and I could see the end zone calling to me. I hear the heavens open up, but then I think I got tackled from behind by a guy named Michael Stonebreaker, if I remember. And he, he like spawned from hell. He stopped me from fulfilling. But I set up touchdown Tommy, Tommy Vardell for that last, that score. <laughs> but it was an extraordinary game, an extraordinary experience. And I still remember Denny Green's sort of lesson to us, God rest his soul. Uh, which was, you know, he was kind of blunt. He was like, there's a lot of better athletes than you all on that field, but we're a better team. When people come together, work together, bleed together, sweat together as a team, there's, there's nothing you can't achieve in life. And it's always been an experience I've taken with me in the teams that I build. Now as a United States Senator, trying to find the common ground in, in, across the aisle and remind us that we're one team here in America and we got a competitive global world. But when we stand together, sweat together, work together, share common values, um, uh, we can have great successes together. So it's one of my great life experiences and you're kind to bring it up 
because the older I the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a fact of life uh, for student athletes that many of them, uh, their careers don't exactly end on their terms. They don't exactly end on the field. They don't exactly end with championships. Yours, for the most part, ended with a meeting in Danny Green's office um, in 1991. But, but from there, uh, that propelled you and set you on the course that you've been on since and led you to Washington, D.C. Uh, given the fact that most student-athletes' careers don't exactly end on their terms, what advice do you have for, for, for those folks who might be going, even, you know, even you might even stretch this towards, towards the graduating seniors who aren't exactly having their careers end on their own terms with graduation ceremonies and things like that. What's your message uh, to student-athletes and to the graduating seniors who aren't exactly having things end on their own terms? Well, I always worry about that transition for those of us that played high level competitive sports where so much of our lives and our identities and even our self-worth was defined by the sport we played. And then suddenly you're not that athlete anymore. Um, I still remember being hanging out with Tiki Barber, who's a friend of mine, and he retired and it's tough how quickly people forget your name. And, and when, you, when you, your self-esteem is wrapped up in that, when your very identity is wrapped up in that, it can be a very... A difficult uh, transition. It was for me. Um, uh, I, I, I still had a year of eligibility of fifth year. And I hope you tell Coach Shaw, I still have a year of eligibility. <laughs> if he wants to see the early death of a United States Senator, let me on one of those fields. <laughs> um, but um, look, I, 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 you asked me what the message is to people who are, are not having an ending like they, like they normally would. I, you just got to remember that what happens to you in life, that's not where your power lies. The stimulus that, of what happens, your power lies in your response, in how you choose to respond. And um, the, for me, the end of football felt like my first life failure. I, I was, it was like it hit me with a two by four. And the, but it was a gift. I think the universe, I think God showing me that even in the depths of what you think is the worst imaginable thing that can happen to you, there are gifts, there are possibilities. And indeed, I would have never applied for a Rhodes Scholarship uh, if, if that door didn't close. I would never have discovered a lot of new opportunities that carried me in exciting direction. So I showed up through that time of, 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 of the, the struggling with the feelings of failure and the feelings of, 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 of loss. Um, but at the same time, I, I never stopped looking uh, for the good, looking for the possibility, understanding that, uh, that in this darkness, I had in with, inside of me an inextinguishable, an invincible, an unconquerable light. And that's what I see now all the time in, uh, in, in this country, is, as people are facing wretchedness and death and pain, seeing their livelihoods crumble before their eyes. Um, I, I still see such heroism of people modeling what it means to be a light worker, still helping, still fighting, still not giving up. Um, and uh, that kind of grit and guts, uh, I, I was gifted by my football experiences. And I hope that no matter you're an athlete or not during these times, understand that you know, hope uh, is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. Do not let the circumstances have the last word. You respond, you show up. Uh, you give a testimony to, in the midst of the trial. Last thing I got for you, uh, Stanford football has done fantastic things. They're coming off of their most successful decade in program history, uh, going to three Rose Bowls, winning two of them, winning Pac-12 championships, and putting a, a host of uh, Heisman Trophy finalists in the room. Two of them should have won, but that's probably a different conversation yeah. for a different time. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you make of, of, of Stanford football's success uh, under Jim Harbaugh at the start, and now David Shaw able to take things uh, to, to, to new levels as well? What do you make about Stanford football's success over the past few years from afar? I mean, from it, it, you know, it's a from afar, but I have to tell you, I'm one of these guys that I get so emotional around games. I still do. And it's, it's uh, I, I'm going to confess something to you. So like, I will TiVo the game because I can't stand the suspense. I want to be able to fast forward. So I'll wait until the game is like an hour into it or two hours. My ideal is to let it go for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, so I can sit down 
block all of it. I don't want to know the outcome, but I can fast forward through the suspenseful moments because I just still, it's the only sport I get too emotional around this <laughs> every football. Um, and I just love our team. I love our, the, the ethos. I love the ideals of, of Stanford. I don't understand why somebody would want to go any place else where you can have world-class education, world-class athletics, uh, uh, the, in the best environment there could be imaginable in the Bay Area, people who of character and honor. I mean, David Shaw is, I played with the guy. He is a mountain of a human being. He really is. And I love his philosophy. And he, and I talked to him about a lot of, a lot of the players. He sees them in the right perspective. He's not just about wins and losses. Well, he is about the wins and losses, but knows that the journey there goes through character, goes through building great men. And I think the secret to his success is really that. I, I mean, he, he's a leader of men around values, around ideals, around ethics that, that, are, that inspire me. And, and what he's created there is just nothing short of inspiring. So you said it at the top of this interview. I mean, my relationship with Stanford has been for decades now as a 91 graduate. It is, it is a relationship that as much as I try to serve that institution, um, 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 the balance sheet, I'm in, I'm in debt. I can't get out of debt. I keep trying to give, and it's given me so much more than, I, uh, than I've been able to, uh, to give. And so I just salute Stanford football. I salute Stanford athletics. I hope we never change our commitment to showing um, what I think is this high ideal, that mind and body are, are interconnected, that, um, that, that, you, that it's not you're being a great athlete despite the academic rigor and the challenges it's actually because of in my opinion uh what makes people great is the totality of your being your holistic approach to well well-being and i think stanford embodies that that the best of those ideals and i'm in awe of the people who continue to take the program higher and higher and higher and all the people involved that make it so special and that includes you as a guy who now for years has been uh, really one of the voices of the team and the sport I love the most. So I'm grateful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And plus Stanford's become tight end you as an old tight yeah. end yourself. That's gonna be pretty cool. No, <laughs> it really, it really is. And again, it makes me very happy that I played when I did because these young men, uh, there's just no way I could ever compete with them. And it's wonderful to watch. Uh, it is wonderful to watch. I'm, I'm excited about this season. God willing, um, we'll be able to do it. Um, I'm not sure if there'll be packed stadiums, but, uh, it, 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 we endure, uh, we are resilient, and we will overcome. Senator from the state of New Jersey, Cory Booker, Stanford class of 91. Senator Booker, an honor, a pleasure. Thanks a bunch. Best of luck. Stay healthy and hope to talk to you again soon. I do as well. Thank you so much. Take care now. Wow, re really an honor to be joined by Senator Cory Booker and uh, a lot to uh, chew on with that conversation, a lot to uh, digest. Um, he's not sure if there will be full stadiums in the fall. A lot of questions about that as of right now. He's also worried about the second wave of the coronavirus, as am I. That's probably a big reason why you're seeing uh, Notre Dame, as they announced last week, uh, that they're going to start their uh, fall term early and uh, finish things up and wrap things up uh, before Thanksgiving. So he's worried about the second wave of things, as am I. And uh, he certainly didn't hold back his thoughts on how the NCAA could improve some aspects of the student-athlete experience. So Super appreciative of uh, Senator Booker's time and uh, hope that uh, you enjoyed uh, that chat and learned as much uh, from that chat um, as I did. Heck of a story about getting recruited by Notre Dame, huh? <laughs> that was good stuff. And we're not done. We're not done. We got Brevin Knight coming up in just a couple of minutes. I cannot wait to dive into all sorts of things with him. But first, very quickly... Live sports slowly but surely coming back. Still no NBA, still no NHL, still no Major League Baseball. However, Bet Online still has got you covered. They have online casino with poker and blackjack. And NASCAR is back as well. And be sure to check out the final dance with roundtable interviews from ex-Chicago Bulls Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper as they discuss the Michael Jordan doc in full. Head to betonline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 Bet online, your online wagering solution.
All right, I'm class of 97, and our guest is class of 97 as well. And if you were at Stanford in the mid-90s, chances are you spent some time at Maples Pavilion and watched this guy do some of his best work and help lift Stanford men's basketball to a place that it had never quite been before, at least not on a consistent basis anyway. Three-time first-team All-Pac-10 was the 1994 Pac-10 Freshman of the Year Went on to a 12-year NBA career after being the 16th overall pick in the 97 draft by the Cleveland Cavaliers. The one and only Brevin Knight joining us on the TreeCast. Brevin, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How you doing? I'm doing good. I need to take you on the roll with me. Whenever <laughs> I walk in somewhere, I would just like to have you do a, a, a little of an announcement before I walk in. Oh, good. Everybody <laughs> needs a good hype man, right? <laughs> It's the way it's the way of the world right now. There you go. There you go. All right, let's start here. Um, you're 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 on the you're living the quarantine life right now, as as most of the rest of us are um, at, at this point. Uh, you call games for the Memphis Grizzlies, and the NBA uh, had its season interrupted, still in a holding pattern. It looks like things might get back on track. We just don't know when and where at this point as we speak here. Uh, where were you when the league shut down, and, and what has life been like for you since then? Well, it's ironic that we're doing this talk here because I was in Vegas watching Stanford play Cal in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament. Uh, myself and Adam Keefe sitting there enjoying the game and then got the message on my phone um, that uh, the two players from Utah tested positive. And then the next message was, was like, well, they tested positive. Well, what are we going to do about everyone else? And then that's when you knew things were going to change drastically. So I went from supposed to be on a flight the next morning to go to Portland because we were on the West Coast trip. We were going to play the Trailblazers the next night to figuring out how to get a plane to go back home to Memphis and figure out uh, how to get all of my family together from all of this. And so we had two daughters in college. And then once we figured out where we were going to be, how to get everyone there, now it's just been like everyone else. Just a lot of, a lot of walks with my wife, with, with the dogs early in the morning. Uh, a lot of a lot of meals with the kids three times a day. Well, I can tell you this much: you you forget how much kids eat when they are not in the house on a regular basis. Because our grocery bill has been a crazy one for the last couple of months. But yeah, so we just been keeping low key, and now that the, the northeast weather is now better, and I'm back on the golf course. <laughs> Look out, everyone on the golf courses around Martha's Vineyard, because Brevin Knight uh, is, is, is coming for you. And, and I th the, sh the shutdown in the NBA came at a very interesting time, I think, specifically, it seems, for the Grizzlies, because, you know, in the standings, they're the eighth seed in the West, a three-and-a-half game lead on Portland. That Portland game was going to be a pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty important one, I'd imagine. Uh, how have things, you know, with, with the shutdown coming when it did, What's the effect on the Grizzlies as you see it right now? And what's the, what's the best case scenario for them, for the team starting back up? I mean, is it, is it just pick up where you leave off or just go straight to the playoffs? Well, for us, we would love to say just go straight to the playoffs because this was a, supposed to just be a rebuild year for this team, you know, with John Morant coming on as our first-round draft pick. We knew that he would be able to do big things and change uh, the culture of the team, and he's done just that with Jaron Jackson Jr., Brandon Clark, Jonas Valanciunas. I mean, the list goes on and on with the amount of guys. The one worry for a young basketball team is how do they keep themselves engaged and ready so when things do start again, if they start again, will they still have the same rhythm that they had? Because I thought that this team was in a very good rhythm, a good place, understanding what it took to win games. And if you want to look at a, a positive through all of this is we had some injuries. So like every other team, those teams that had nicks and bruises, this gave you an opportunity to heal up. And so when and if they do come back, teams will come back more intact. And so that's why I think those veteran teams will have a little bit more of a head start, you know, if we're able to come back than the younger teams, just because they haven't been there, we've had the time off, they really don't know how to adjust in this way. And so uh, I, I, hopefully it's something that because of their health and because they had the synergy all year, they can just pick right up where they left off, whether that be a first-round series, playoff series right away, or if they're trying to finish some number of games in the regular season. But uh, I thought it was good for them just to get healthy. But it also, I think a little bit, it, it hurts younger teams because it takes you out of 
rhythm that they're, they're not accustomed to. And, and I'd imagine that there's a big psychological component here right. as well, especially with the fact that we just don't know when things are going to fire up and, and if so, where everyone's going to Orlando or, or, or whatever. Uh, I'd imagine that this is a tremendous psychological and mental test, uh, specifically for the younger guys, but, but for everyone here as well. Yeah, I think it's as, as much of a test as it is for the rest of the country. You know, it, people are not accustomed to being told to hold in one place, and especially for professional athlete, athletes, and especially NBA guys, where travel is a norm is a normal part of your life, and so you go from doing all of your norms to just sitting still. And how do you continue to motivate yourself on a regular basis? And the mental the mental toughness has to kick in, not just for athletes, but for every citizen and, and pretty much everyone in the world, because this pandemic has hit everyone, and so. We talk about physically keeping yourself right, but I think the biggest thing was if you keep yourself mentally engaged, then you can get through this hurdle and at least look like yourself on the other side. And so hopefully that's what everyone is doing around the entire world, within our organization, within the, the NBA itself. But that those are, you want people to be physically healthy, but mentally you want people to at least stay engaged enough so that when this does turn a corner, at least, you can get back to somewhat of a, a normal life. Yeah, well said, well said. No doubt about, uh, no, no doubt about that. Uh, let's talk about Stanford men's basketball. And, and an up-and-down season for them had some games that, that got away from them, that, that game at USC when they were up by 25 and, and USC came back and won. That haunts me still uh, to this very day. Uh, some good moments, some moments that they'd love to have back, but they have been killing it in recruiting, signing yeah. a superb class. Uh, what, what's your take on the trajectory of this Stanford men's basketball program as it sits right now? Well, if, you, if they can continue to get the recruits that they've continued to get, and then you build around those guys, and then you have – because I always say you're always going to have your star players, but your team is made by your role players. And if your role guys can every night be able to step up and be a, a help to those star guys, then that can continue to put them in a position to be good. But, I mean, it, it's they're, they're going to need the synergy just like this Grizzlies team needed it in order to be good. I think that they definitely got some nice young pieces, but they're only going to be as good as the unit. And so if they can – if we can find a way to – once they have their practice time to get better. But I think that they are – the trajectory is going in the right direction. It's just a matter of you just got to get over the hump. You got to get – you have to at least put yourself in position to be an NCAA team, and then you got to make it to the tournament. And then once you make it one year, then the next year you know what it takes to get there. Right now we have a team of guys that don't know what it takes to get over that hump. So if they can find a way to get over it, then I think you have enough talent and skill. And I think coach and the coaching staff has done a great job of putting it together. Now you can start to see the consecutive NCAA runs that we had back in the day. But it just it, – it's I think what we're seeing is it's not easy to make it to the NCAAs on a regular basis. And when you're in the midst of it, enjoy it because you never know when it could go away. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds a lot like – the situation and the setup when you arrived at Stanford in the fall of 1993, how similar are any similarities between uh, the, the situation that you came into and the situation that maybe Stanford's in right now? I, I think the, the difference was we were going through, it wasn't just a team change. It was a total identity change that Stanford basketball was going through when I came in. Um, it was one to pick up the tempo of the game, you had to get more athletes. You had to, the pace of basketball had to be better if we were going to compete in the Pac-10. And they had, and it had to start from the guard positions because every Pac-10 school had a dominant guard. And I think that once I was able to understand that and get better at that role, then I thought that that gave us a chance to be good every night out. And I think that same thing goes with this team. It, you know, it, we, we are, we are hoping that the, the rookie, the freshman coming in can help and, and get us over the top. Uh, but it's, it, it, the difference is they have a lot more skill and there is, there's more of a vision of how this team can be good. When we, were, when we came in in 93, it was pretty much Mike was just like, all right, well, let's, let's kind of see where this, where, what we can do, who can do what. It was all a testing ground. 
I don't think there has to be much of a testing ground. I think that coach understands the style that they would like to play, the players now. Now it's just a matter of fitting it all in. But the similarity is you got to figure out a way to get back to the NCAA tournament. That, yeah. was, that was our talk every day from day one. It wasn't be an NIT team. It wasn't – definitely wasn't that, that third-level tournament CB. I don't even know if they still do it. It was all about making the right plays and doing the preparation to be an NCAA team. And so if they can just take that mindset, then they have the talent. Um, the other thing that they have is they have a down pack 12. And so when you – you, you got to take advantage of those situations. And, and so we're, we still have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, conference could be wide open, or at least, you know, maybe one very good team at the top, but a tremendously wide middle that anything can happen. Looks like yeah. that might be shaping up uh, that way again for the Pac-12 um, next year. You, you may have hinted at it a little bit, uh, and, and, and if you did, I'd love to explore it a little bit more. Um, what did you bring to Stanford men's basketball? When you arrived on campus, when you came into that program, what did you bring that maybe it hadn't had before? I think it was just a it was a level of swagger that we that is that was not synonymous with Stanford basketball, and I, I think that Stanford basketball was was going to be good kids come from great backgrounds, going to play the game the right way, they're going to execute their plays, and they they might just not have the talent to get over the hump. I think what I brought was it was an edge. We didn't have an edge at Stanford, I don't think, and I, I think that's what that's what came with me was. An edge, and, but an edge that had to be polished to make sure that it fit the group of guys that we had. And, and so I think they, once they, they saw that all of what I did was to make us be better, and it's kind of like everyone got on board with it. And, and when, you can, when you can win over guys at the point position and you can get people to play a little bit above their heads, or at least be on a consistent basis, then you give yourself a chance to win. And that's all I wanted to empower my guys to believe was that you can do it and we need you to play your role if we're going to be good. And I think that when you let everyone have a hand in it, but then your main guys still play their role, then that means that, that everybody feels as though the team goes as they go. Now, your ascent surprised a lot of folks, including Mike Montgomery himself, apparently. Were you surprised by how your career started and how, how, how upward the trajectory was for you uh, by the end of it all? Were you surprised by how things went for you? Uh, I, I, was, I was surprised by the outcomes. Um, I, I wasn't surprised at the play. Like, it was my, my play got better between after my freshman year, and a lot of that had to do with I had never worked out in basketball in my entire life until I got to Stanford. I just played basketball every week. Growing up in New Jersey, we go to the park every day, and, and that's where you hone your skill. You learn what you can and can't do on the floor. And so it wasn't individual workouts. I, I loathe doing individual workouts. After we played, Jason Kidd came up to me after the game and told me that I think you got a chance to be a pro. And I never, no one ever told me that I had a chance to be a pro. They always told me you're a good basketball player, you got a chance to play in a college, but never to be a pro. And so it was never a goal of mine to be a professional basketball player. It was a dream, but not a goal. After I had that talk with him and after my freshman year, it was the first summer that I worked out. Myself and Keith Larson, my assistant coach, I went home for a month or so and I went back to Stanford and we worked on my basketball game to the point where I learned how to shoot. I didn't even know how to shoot when I got to college. Shot the ball from the left side of my head. That's how I would shoot jump shot. Never took threes. It was just, it was on just sheer quickness and my knowledge of basketball that I was able to be effective on the floor. But he taught, we went and he taught me and we worked on all of the finer points. Um, and so after that summer, when I went back for my sophomore year, that's when I felt like, oh, I could be a pro. Number one, I've worked at this. But I've also had the best tell me that I could be a pro, which was Jason Kidd. So uh, I always give him a lot of credit for giving me that last little push that I needed to become a pro basketball player. Certainly some great guards uh, during that era of, of Pac-10 basketball yourself. You got my butt kicked. Yep. Damon Stoudemire. Yep. 
Hey, I never we do you can talk about every great point guard there was in the Pac-10. Now yeah, I say the Pac-10. Damon Stoudemire was yeah. the only guard that I would have worries about the night before playing. The only one. And I'm talking about from Tyus Edney to Jason Kidd. Um, we can go you go down the line of people who, who I played, Kenya Wilkins in mm-hmm. Oregon. Mm-hmm. There's a line of people that I that were great point guards, but there was only one that had my attention on at its highest, and that was that was Damon Stein. Only person that scored forty against me in my career. Yeah, I, I was I was there that night. Uh, Arizona <laughs> went to overtime, and Stanford had a chance to, to to win it at the very end, and 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 Stoudemire just 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 kept just kept running on going. We'll we'll, we'll skip over that. A more pleasant <laughs> memory. What comes to your mind when I say the following two numbers? This, this is a set of numbers. 109 to 61. What comes to mind UCLA, for you? UCLA, Maples mm-hmm. Pavilion. Yep. It, it was magical, is what I tell people. It was one of those nights where we came in with, we wanted to prove that we belonged on the floor with every big name team in the Pac-10 that Stanford had arrived and we were, we were as big as anyone else. And we knew that the only way that you get to that point is you got to beat the big dogs. You, you have to, in some way, put yourself on that level. And, and that night it was like the basket was as big as the ocean. And usually that happens for one person. You get one person that's hot, but we had a team and, and it, it was, the building was rocking and we, I, First time that I could say, like, we demoralized UCLA. I mean, you could see the life just leave them during that game. And it was – we just continued to pour it on. So that, that's one that you could say those two numbers and nothing but a big smile would come across my face. <laughs> I just remember looking at the scoreboard at the first TV timeout, and it said 17-1. to 1, And I said, holy, and all sorts of things that I won't say because <laughs> this is a family podcast. And it's interesting. I uh, worked, for, worked at ESPN up uh, down in Connecticut uh, for a few years. I'd bump into Steve Lavin more often than not, and he'd be like, oh, no, I know, 109-61. Get, get out of here. I don't want to see you. I want to talk about that. <laughs> Uh, your, your career at Stanford ended with Stanford making a sweet 16. Uh, another fantastic game. Went to overtime. Stanford didn't come away with it. I was at the San Jose Arena that night, and I remember walking out of the building going, wow, that was the ultimate. How could Stanford possibly top this? The next year they go to a Final Four, and over the next eight years or so, they have two more teams that probably should have gone uh, to the Final Four. But what, as you watched Stanford do what it did and have the success that it did, the amazing success that it did um, a- after you set the tone, what sort of things went through your mind as you watched Stanford uh, really make its true ascent um, from afar? Felt like I was a part of it. You know, and even though I, I physically wasn't there for the Final Four run, those are all my guys. Those are all my youngsters, you know, and I felt like I did my job because my job was to get the program going in the right direction. But it was also to leave the program in a great place. It wasn't just to get there for my four years and say, be happy with the fact that we have gone to bigger heights than any other Stanford basketball team has gone to at any time. It was, I wanted to see them become a Final Four team. I wanted to see us become a perennial Sweet 16 team. And to sit back and say that you had a hand in getting that started, that, that, was, that, was, that was enough for me. And, and I didn't need the, the best this or the best that. I just needed to see that every year, I'm able to pick Stanford in the NCAA bracket. And that was something that if you say back in 92, before I got, even in 93, when I got there, nobody would have been talking about Stanford being a final four team. I don't even think we get the players that we got after that time. If we weren't as good as we were from 93, 94 to 97, I thought that the, and it's not just Brevin Knight, the list goes down. Everyone, that played on every one of those Stanford teams, we should all feel good about where Stanford basketball went from there because we created a basketball culture that was not there at all. Uh, And so it's 
it's a good feeling. And I, I mean, I, I just want to get back to seeing it on a regular basis that, that we are NCAA team regularly. And, uh, and, and I see us taking the steps uh, to get back to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how things uh, shake out over the next uh, few years uh, for Stanford men's hoops. A couple last things for you here. I, I, I got to get your thoughts, obviously, as, as a strong-willed, strong-minded competitor, a guy who played in the league, a guy who, who helped change a culture and, and, and take a program to places that had never been before. I got to get your thoughts on the last dance. As you watched mm-hmm. it unfold, what sort of things went through, went through your mind in relating to, to maybe some of your experiences? Well, the first one was our Cleveland, our, our Cleveland, that's my rookie year. We were the only team to beat the Bulls twice and have a 500 record versus them that year. And for the two seasons, they had never had a defeat by 21 points as we did in that first year that when we beat them. So it, 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 for me, it was like, oh, that's puff our chest out because that was my idol to play against Jordan and to have success in that one season against them. Uh, that, that was fun for us. And it was something that we always will always remember no matter what. I think the takeaway for me was you knew some of the turmoil that was going on with that team, but you never knew the extent of the turmoil. And for them to still win the 60-plus games, still going to win another championship, the way that that did, it was a tribute to the greatness of Michael, but it was also a tribute to the greatness of Phil Jackson. Uh, and that entire coaching staff and how they were able to understand the pulse of the team and how to push what buttons. But it also, I think people will look at it and say, oh, Michael Jordan was a mean guy. He may have been an ass this. But there was one scene where you saw humanity and you saw how much it hurts him that people took his competitive nature as a negative. When he talked about how hard he played, how hard he worked, to be in the game and he just wanted everyone else to have that same experience. And then he had to say cut because he started to get emotional about it. And a big part of that, I think is because he was such a, a misunderstood person. Nobody understands what it's like to be the greatest at what you do. And the greatest at something that is on, that is on display all the time. And so for him to have to always be the best, always be on whether it's on the court or off the court he gave a lot of himself he just expected those other guys to work as hard as he did because his work didn't stop just on the floor he had to continue to work off the floor and that's not what anybody else had to do except for him and so I think the emotion to see him tear up at that point it gave it it let us know that he is human now of course I've seen a lot I've seen the other side of him because I've worked for him with when I played for the Bobcats, he was our owner. So I got a chance to talk to him and see him in a different way. But everyone else just sees him as the great Air Jordan. But there he still is a person. And I think that's the personal side came out at that point. And it's always amazing to me and, and getting to know athletes a bit more over the past, you know, decade plus that I that I've done this. It's always amazing to me how hard it is to make things look easy, especially for the all-time greats. You know, they make it look so easy on the court, but there's so much hard work that goes into it beforehand. As we wrap this up, um, as we speak, um, NBA still trying to get back up to speed, trying to figure out plans and scenarios and things like that. What, what's your best case scenario as far as the NBA finishing up the season? What are some things you want to see? And what's your best case scenario uh, for the Memphis Grizzlies as they fire things up here? Well, of course, we, I, w- I would love to see basketball back again. It's, it's, it's been my love and passion my entire life. And so I, I, you never want to have a season that has an asterisk next to it, that there is no completion at all. And so um, we, we would like, to, like for there to be a season, but I am, I am one in which I don't want to risk people's health to play a sport. If there's a way that they can – somehow make it to where guys have the best chance to play but not have to worry about their own health, then I want to see it played again. If we can't come up with the best scenario to keep those people as healthy as possible, I'm fine with waiting until next year to play basketball, whether that be December, whether you don't play now and you start in a regular time in October, so whatever that may be, 
Um, and if it if it is able to play, then as a broadcaster, I would love to be on site and call the games. But I would totally understand if for this special circumstance, we have to call it from off of a monitor, sitting back in Memphis in our own studio and do it that way, um, just to cut down on the amount of people that have to be trafficked in. But at the end of the day, Troy, it's going to be a huge undertaking to have it anywhere, to have it in Orlando, to have it in Vegas, because you are still talking about putting everybody in one bubble, and you are saying that you can't have one outside influence get into that bubble, because if it happens to one person, now the tight, the, you are so close together in tight quarters that now it's, it, it looks like a little New York City, where we are so on top of each other that one gets it, two gets it. That's what you want to try. And so um, it, they're going to have to be a lot of security um, situations put in place to not let people out. But now you're talking about you've already put people in quarantine for two months, two and a half months where they haven't done anything. Now you tell me to go play basketball, but still under quarantine rules. I mean, it's, it, it'll, be, it'll be very stressful, I think, and still it'll be a huge adjustment for players, not just to play without fans, but to play in, in a confined situation that you play this game and you can only go back to your room. And so, so um, I want basketball as much as everybody. I want to be healthy. Um, and I still want guys to be able to play it so we really see basketball. I, I don't want to see half basketball because, guys, I don't want to run into this guy or what do I do next. So right. uh, it, it stands to be seeing how. Um, but I am I'm like everybody else that loves sports. You just want to feel it again. It's such a big part of, of our culture. Yeah, chomping at the bit, but I also want to see it done the safest and most responsible way possible. And if it takes longer, I'm okay with so it. Big. Yeah. I, I listen, and, and a lot of people are like, oh, well, you, I'm like, listen, I'm not getting paid. I haven't been paid for the last two months. It's not the, the, the and I understand that I'm in a, right, I'm in a different position than, than most Americans, but I still care enough about the game. I care enough about those guys that have to put themselves out there that I want them to be able to do it at the best possible level that they can do it of safety so that we can see them be themselves. Yeah. 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 Uh, 100%, 100% right there with you. Uh, he helped build Stanford men's basketball to what it, what the standard has now become. And he's doing great things with the Memphis Grizzlies right now. And hopefully he's about to do great things on the golf course. Brevin Knight joining us on the TreeCast. Brevin, I really appreciated this chat. Really enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Uh, best of luck going forward. Stay healthy to your family as well. And we'll talk again soon, hopefully. Uh, Troy, you do the same. And I, I'm going to tell you this. this I, I hope this is not my last, not my first and last interview. I, I'm no hoping doubt. that we, we better do this again. And, I, and I'm putting it out there. And I have put Troy on notice. I want to come on again. This is not a one and done for me. I'm, I'm not a not a big time recruit. Done and done. Brevin, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. All right. Have a good one, man. Brevin Knight, folks. Brevin Knight. Man, that was uh that was a fun, fun conversation with him. Even though we talked about that 95 game against Arizona. Bart Lamerson had it all in his hands. Oh, I still remember that too. Oh, but man, what a what, what great great to hear from him number one great to hear that he's doing well living the quarantine life in Martha's Vineyard and uh, interesting getting his his comparisons between where Stanford men's basketball sits right now to where it was when he came on campus in 1993 perhaps on the verge of being able to do some great things loved his thoughts on when the NBA went from being a dream to being a goal for him and really uh, you, you could sense the pride when he talked about even not even necessarily what his teams were able to do, but with what teams after him were able to do, making the Final Four, becoming a major player in the Pac-12 and on the national scenes. He takes ownership of that, and rightfully so, because if not for Brevin Knight, many of the wonderful and fantastic things that we saw from Stanford men's basketball from 1993 to the Lopez twins era would not have happened. It's, it's just that simple. You know, there's some times where you can just pin a, 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 a program's turnaround on one player. And even though he certainly had a lot of help, a lot of great guys around him, 
Brevin Knight was the one who stirred the drink. He was the one who got it going. Really appreciate Brevin Knight's time. And uh, hey, Brevin wants to do this again. My man, you got my number. You have a standing invitation. Anytime you want to come into the show, you are always welcome. Really appreciate Brevin Knight's time and uh, really had a, a lot of fun with that conversation and with Senator Cory Booker as well. Man, this was this 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 was a fun show. Really hope you had as much fun as I did. You have thoughts? You want to react to anything on this show? I always welcome your participation. I try to make this as interactive as I possibly can. Uh, the best way to do it on Twitter, hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast. You've got thoughts you want to react to anything that uh, either Senator Booker or Brevin Knight talked about? Uh, anything on Stanford Athletics Plate? Anything that involves Stanford football? I always welcome uh, your uh, per your portion of the conversation as well. Hashtag TreeCast on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, you can follow me at Troy Clarity. Last name is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y at Troy Clarity. By the way, you want to advertise on the show? That is always a good thing. I highly recommend that, especially in this day and age. Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. Head there because the TreeCast is a part of the Believe Podcast Network. B-L-E-A-V.com. Hit the advertise section and uh, tell the folks, hey, I want to I wanna advertise on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity. We would all certainly appreciate that. I appreciate our guests, Brevin Knight, Senator Cory Booker, and I appreciate you for listening as well. If you missed any of our other fantastic chats that we've had over the past few weeks, I highly suggest you hit up the vault and uh, check out previous episodes. If you haven't subscribed yet to the show, now's a pretty good time to do so, I, I would think. And uh, hopefully we've got uh, big things in store for you in the weeks ahead. Cannot wait to continue to bring this show, planning on doing it all throughout the summer. Until next week, don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, be smart. Let's all do what we need to do to make sure that everything is back up to speed so that we start and finish college sports on time next season. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for checking us out on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity. Presented by the Believe Podcast Network.